maybe that's because I've spent a lot of my career not being very specialized, even though it may sound very specialized, talk about something like, like phosphorus, but I have worked in a lot of different dimensions of mm-hmm. it from, I published a paper on pandas, giant pandas once. We've worked on cancer biology. We've worked on all kinds of things because maybe I have a short attention span. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Get ready to learn some big words. Today, I speak with Jim Elser, Beerman Professor of Ecology at the University of Montana and Director of the Flathead Lake Biological Station. Jim studies limnology and is a world-class scholar, as evidenced by his recent election to the National Academy of Sciences. In this conversation, Jim teaches me all about his field of study, why it's important, and why Montana is the best place on earth for his research. I learned a ton from Jim, and I hope that you do too. So let's get into it right now. Okay, so we're here today with Jim Elser. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. You know, this is, uh, it's taken a little bit of work to pull this one together. You're you're up at the Flathead Biological Center, which we'll talk about in in a moment. Uh, You were down on campus, we had the date wrong, and then you tried to get down here again today, and and, and we're in an endless traffic jam, so we're doing this remotely, and I appreciate your, your flexibility today. Well, it's uh, anything worth doing is worth uh, spending a little time on. Well, you don't know that it's worth doing yet, you know. So, <laughs> all right, we'll ho- see about that. I guess. Yeah, hopefully, we'll. Uh, that's an empirical question, right? Okay, that's um, right. Anyway, so you are the director of the the Flathead Bio Station. Tell us about what, what is the Bio Station. What what happens up there? Well, the Flathead Lake Biological Station is a part of the University of Montana, uh, but it serves a broader community than only the university. It is, uh, I like to think of it as like a super collider for ecology. Super colliders are apparatus that, you know, society invests in to make physics discoveries. And field stations are investments that society makes to make discoveries about the environment around us. Um, So this biostation, the Flathead Lake Biological Station has been here since 1899. It's one of the oldest uh, field stations of its kind in the United States almost as old as the university itself. It yeah. was found by one by one of the university's first uh, professors, this guy by the name of Morton Elrod. Um, he has a building named that for him on campus. And, you know, pretty much when he started at the university in the mid-1800s there, um, he just started coming up this direction and started bringing students and colleagues and others with him to document the natural history of the area and uh, over time he continued to do that and over time more sort of infrastructure started to appear and eventually um, a pretty big operation was put in place and now we have 35 year round employees here at the station during summer we have 85 people on payroll we have uh, six or seven pretty substantial buildings uh, for research and for housing and for administration uh, we can accommodate about a hundred, up to a hundred people uh, here at a time. We have a lot of students who come through in the summer for taking our summer session. They come from all over the world, actually, and uh, we conduct a lot of pretty cool advanced research funded by NASA and the National Science Foundation and other organizations. And then the other thing we do is we maintain a r- rigorous monitoring program on the lake to 
and the rivers that flow into it to sort of assure the water quality and um, and the health of the of the ecosystem on behalf of everyone who loves this lake. So that's kind of what we do, um, maybe in a nutshell, maybe not. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, I, I think most folks, you know, that folks know I'm a professor and, and the first question they ask is, what do you teach? And you know, teaching yeah. teaching is a big part of, of our jobs in general. Um, but you're more of a, a, a research professor. You have students in the summer and you probably advise a lot of graduate students, I would presume, but yep. talk a little bit about your life as an academic and what that's all yeah, about. Yeah, so as the director, I'm in a more administrative role, so I, you know, work with our staff here to make sure the station is running smoothly. We have buildings to keep up. We have, you know, streets to plow. We sure. operate a wastewater treatment plant. We do all kinds of things in addition to uh, the research that we do. So my profile is a little different than a typical faculty member, or at least my profile before I took this job. Um, I do teach in the summer. I teach a, a field ecology class with uh, Diana Six from down there on campus. Okay. Uh, we do have three other faculty members here who are more in the regular faculty profile. They have, uh, you know, the regular distribution of duties, which includes a teaching assignment here on the station in summer during our summer session, and then also they teach on campus. Um, during the academic season, and so they mix uh, their teaching and their research and their service in the, the way that professors generally do. And I can't remember, Jim, when you came on board. It was like five years ago or so? Uh, you, this you... Is, we just finished our fourth summer, so okay. we're coming into our fifth year, yeah. So yeah. Um, they, I, they continue to introduce me as the new guy around, but I don't feel that new anymore. People, I think, hope they're getting used to me. Maybe they'll get tired of me soon. I don't know. But, uh, I doubt that. <laughs> I don't. I, it's it's feeling more comfortable now. I feel I feel more at home. Uh, yeah, and so you are, uh, you know, you're going to have to coach me through some of the vocabulary here. Generally, I use the the fact that you know the the the, the sign that I can't pronounce many of the words that I need to that I okay. need to pronounce to have an interview is is the sign that I'm talking to somebody really smart. So um, that'll be the case today. But my understanding is you're uh, you study limnology. Right? Yeah, and, and I don't even know what. Well, I think I have an idea about that. What that is, but tell us what it is, and tell us well, how, how you got interested in it. In a nut, you know, to put it shortly, limnology is oceanography, but in lakes. Okay, I like that. So most people know what oceanography is. Uh, study oceans. Well, you know, limnology is sort of the same thing, but studying lakes, not just lakes, but also ponds, uh, also rivers and streams. It's sort of the study of inland waters. And, you know, just like oceanography is, you know, pretty interdisciplinary, you, you know, combines physical properties of the oceans and their chemical properties and their biological properties. Same thing with limnology. We study the physical, chemical, and biological things that are going on in lakes and rivers. And uh, I'm mostly a biologist, but, you know, when you're a limnologist, you find yourself having to learn all those other parts, like the chemical parts and the physical parts, even though you might not specialize in them. Yeah, tell us about tell us how yeah. about how you got interested in this. Well, um, I was sort of an undergraduate with vague ideas of what I wanted to do with my life. I like knew most. I yeah, I didn't want to become a doctor because my father was a doctor, and I would faint whenever I'd go on rounds with him and pass out <laughs> in the hospital. Um, I was very queasy. Um, remain that way, actually. Uh, anyway, so medical school is not going to be for me. I had an idea that I was going to do something in nature, like being outside and such. Um, the 
be a forest ranger, park ranger, something like that. But then, you know, here's the power of a field station. I went to the field station that was associated with my undergraduate university, which is the University of Notre Dame. And they had a field station in northern Wisconsin. Um, and I took a four-week class up there, and it was super fun and super cool. And I discovered that there was a whole, you know, set of organisms that lived in lakes that I didn't know about mm-hmm. <laughs> before. And that there were people who spent their whole lives studying them. And that there was a whole discipline of science called limnology that existed that I didn't know about before. And... Um, and that's sort of what started it for me uh, as sort of a junior in college. Sure. And, and did you go straight to graduate school, I would presume? Yeah, I went straight to graduate school, did a master's degree. Then I worked for a few years on a limnology project as a you know, technical scientist, technician. And then I did my PhD. And then I started my faculty career. Yeah. And so yeah. why why Montana? Why was, why was the Flathead Station... Um, on your radar and uh you know yeah why, why would you choose to move your work here well the flathead station is well known in yeah. the field of limnology and aquatic ecology you know, nationally internationally uh, a lot of great work been done up here over the years great programs well known to have great facilities previous director jack stanford did a great job so it was well known in the field um and i have sort of have a uh, attraction to field stations. I must, a lot of my research uh, in the past has been done out of different field stations around the world. So I like working at them and the whole concept of them. Obviously, I got started at one. Sure. Has that has to do with just the, the access, like you're in it? Yeah, you're in it. You're there. It's all happening around you. Right. There's some things you can't observe or can't track or keep uh, your finger on unless you're right there if you have to, you know, drive even several hours away to somewhere else to get your data, it's going to really change the sorts of uh, studies you can do. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, I was a faculty member at Arizona State University for 26 years, which is kind of a tough place to be a limnologist. <laughs> yeah, not really. a ton of water around Yeah, there. you know, so, so uh, I did a lot of traveling. I, you know, it was great. I mean, the university was good to me and I had a good time there. But, you know, I had traveled the world to different projects, doing them in different places. And, and that was fun and everything, but it's also kind of stressful <laughs> and hard to keep going. And had you been doing any, I know you do some work up in, up in Glacier. Had you been doing any of that work in Montana before coming to the bio station? No, I had never been to Montana really? <laughs> actually before awesome. I interviewed for the job. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been in living in Arizona for a long time, lived in California Worked in Colorado on some field projects, you know, traveled around a bit, but no, had never had a chance to come to Montana. Um, so uh, pretty cool to have this chance. Yeah, I mean, it must be just just sort of the pure immersive situation that you're in. But also, I mean, we're kind of at the forefront of a lot of what's happening um, with climate change, particularly, you know, up, up, up in Glacier National Park. It gets a lot of attention for that fact. Yes, that's right. So um, the glaciers in the park are uh, shrinking. The number of named glaciers has declined since the park was established. Um, we've been working on that a bit over the last several summers. I've started a sort of summertime project up there where we go and sample what we call the the new lakes. So the lakes have been um, some new lakes have formed in the last 50, 75 years as the glaciers have retreated 
um, and they don't even have names or anything like that. Mm. They really are barely on the maps. Um, they haven't been sampled before, so we are up there trying to get sort of a baseline uh, of them. Um, it's fun. It's also a lot of work um, and challenging, And but, you know, we have some pretty exciting um, trips up there. And so what does – yeah, I mean, what is that – I don't even know other than sort of just documenting the existence of a new lake, but is there much known scientifically about the attributes of a new lake and, and, and no, that's life the point. cycles within yeah. it? Yeah. Tell, talk a little bit about what you've learned through you know, that. That's the point because, I mean, yeah, so, you know, lakes have food webs. You know, I described, you know, that I was in college before I realized that most people don't appreciate that. They look at a lake, they see a bunch of water. Yeah. Maybe they have the sense that if it's green, there's some algae growing in it, but they don't really know that there's food webs, there's animal plankton in there, things are eating each other, there's all kinds of interactions going on, you know, and the question is when a new lake forms, they have a lot of questions like about how that ecology gets rolling, you know, how do things get started, where do they come from, who gets there first, you know, um, how does the food web get built over time? Because, you know, if we come back to those, if we could come back to those lakes a century from now, they'll, you know, have a lot more diversity and a lot right. more types of organisms in them they have, than they have currently. And certainly when they just started to form in the first decade or two, they're probably nothing but bacteria and other unicellular microorganisms in there. In there. And there's not much more than that now, even after 50 years, but they're, you know, they seem to be developing an ecology that the, that starts to resemble those that are at lower elevation, but still alpine lakes that we that we sample. And so that's that's one of your kind of current projects. You know, broadly speaking, Jim, what are what are kind of the the main areas of research questions that you're asking? Yeah, the biggest things that care that combine that sort of uh, characterize almost all the work I've done over the years has been trying to understand the role of nutrients and nutrient limitation in shaping uh, ecosystems. Okay. And by what do I mean by nutrients? The nutrients I'm talking about are the elemental building blocks of living things, nitrogen and phosphorus are the key ones, especially that I've studied. Um, these are important for all living things, um, including us, our own bodies are composed of those elements along with some others. They're very important for feeding us. So, for example, you know, uh, high-yield agriculture, the Green Revolution, is driven in part by the application of chemical fertilizers containing nitrogen and phosphorus. So to feed the world, we really need nitrogen and phosphorus to be applied in agriculture, which, of course, is a good thing, right, to feed ourselves and mm -hmm. make sure everyone's healthy and well-fed. But the problem with that comes when those elements – are lost from the food system or from ecosystems in, you know, our, our, our own ecosystems, our urban ecosystems into rivers and lakes. And then, and then the algae start to grow because algae like nitrogen phosphorus too. And so if you see a nice clear lake, like Flathead Lake, it's a sign that that lake does not have a lot of nitrogen phosphorus in it. But as those nutrients move around and leak out of places where they're used intensively, it causes algae blooms and, water quality degradation and issues. And so a lot of what I've been doing the last 10 years or so is trying to square that circle. How is it that we can continue to feed, um, you know, 7 billion, 8 billion, maybe 11 billion people eventually 
a few decades without at the same time destroying our drinking water supply by stimulating toxic algae blooms. I really, I really like the way you frame that, Jim, because so much of it is, I mean, a lot of this work connects to advocacy in some important ways, and we can, we can talk about that, but you framed it as a system. You know, a lot of people look at these things as either or, like the science is looking at the consequence of getting these nutrients in the water, and, and it's, it's sort of held up there as we need to stop doing X, Y, and Z. But you're talking about a balance between a bunch of activities and demands on the resource and how they're balanced with sort of the, the interests of a, of a society and a community. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit about your, is there a holistic perspective in what you do here? Well, that's kind of, uh, yeah, how we're trying to approach things. Um, you know, myself speaking just, you know, personally, you know, I've come from the a lake perspective and, you know, and my, I like blue lakes. I like clear lakes. Sure, we I all like, do. You know, um, and we seem all to like those kind of lakes. Uh, and I know that you need to get that kind of lake. You've got to have, you know, protected from phosphorus inputs. So it's easy for someone on that from that perspective to say, oh, phosphorus, we got to stop using it. We got to stop applying it. We have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, those farmers, they're destroying everything. It is tempting to go down that road. On the other hand, um, it's obvious that we need to feed ourselves as well. And it's very hard to figure out the ways and people are working on this and we're advocating for it. How is it that we can develop, uh, perfect, revolutionize um, our agricultural systems, our food systems, our water systems, such that we can have abundant uh, food, healthy food that uh, people have access to while uh, keeping the phosphorus and nitrogen within the food system and keeping it from going places where it doesn't belong. That's not an easy problem. Yeah, it, <laughs> it sounds, requires the, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of sectors to come together from, you know, what dietary choices people make um, in their day-to-day life to how much capital investment takes place on agricultural systems to whether you incentivize or punish um, uh, to try to change people's practices with nutrients. Um, whether or not we can develop systems to recover, recycle nutrients from within the food system before they leak out. How do we innovate that? All these things, super complicated, intimidating, exciting to think about. Um, Right now I'm thinking a lot about them because we're finishing a book, a colleague and I from Lancaster University, a guy named Phil Hagerth, are finishing a book about phosphorus that we're writing, you know, for a general audience. Yeah, you sort of described that to me as as a general audience book, The Past and Future of Phosphorus. Um, I don't know if those two two concepts are necessarily uh, compatible, general audience and phosphorus, but yeah, make the case for phosphorus. (laughs) Why should I care about it? Well, make the case for it. Well, you know, I think that people are starting to understand carbon. Yeah, barely, Um, but we're trying. People are starting to come to grips with carbon and, and what it means and, you know, how we handle it and how, what it, how it impinges on our future. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when I talk to people about this, you know, I did this at an informal event up at Whitefish a few weeks ago, you know, at a bar or whatever, talking about science. And I just ask people, hey, do you, uh, uh, how much phosphorus do you have in your body? <laughs> yeah. Nobody and knows. they get this blank look, right? And, <laughs> you know, first you have to explain what phosphorus is. And then you, if, then you let them know that they have a pound and a half in their body, and you do, Justin. 
a pound and a half of phosphorus in your body. And then I ask them, well, where is it in your body? And then, um, Blank and then stairs. another puzzled expression. <laughs> the answer to that question for humans and other vertebrate animals like us is in your bones. Mm, okay. About 90% of it's in your bones in a form of calcium phosphate mineral called appetite. And then the question becomes, where did you get that phosphorus from? Where did it come from? Well, obviously, you got it from your food, but how did your food get it? And then the answer to the question becomes, well, if you're from North America, that phosphorus came from Florida, because right. that's where our phosphorus mines are. But if you're from Europe, that phosphorus probably came from Morocco. And then I can ask him, well, where's your grandchildren's phosphorus going to come from? And that answer probably is that everyone's phosphorus, unless things change a lot, will come from Morocco, because they have 90% of the known phosphorus reserves for producing phosphorus fertilizer. So I don't know. I think that if there's a pound and a half of something in your body, you ought to know more about it. I like that. That's a pretty tight pitch, Jim. <laughs> you I know? Mean, you've got me one over. Sign me up for a book. <laughs> yeah, good. All right. Well, there's one. I'll tell the publisher. So when I'm thinking about this, you know, the, the problems that you're you're looking at, and we mentioned this a little bit earlier, they're, they're big and complicated and systemic and in many ways, that's the job of science to, to, to tackle problems like that. Um, yet in many sort of areas of science, particularly for junior folks too, like there are rewards to getting more narrow with your areas of inquiry. And so how have you kind of navigated that or have you navigated that in your, in your <laughs> career as far as getting work out, getting grants, things like that, this this – having a giant problem and maybe a paradigm that forces you to, or motivates you to tackle little pieces of it at a time. Oh, I don't know. I'm not very good at maybe my boss at the vice president's office for research might like this, but I'm really good at get right, right. At getting proposals rejected by funding agencies. I'm not so good at getting them funded because <laughs> oh, I always man. tend to write the proposal that I'm excited about. But you have to, you're, you're supposed to write the proposal that the funding panel is excited about. Right. And those two aren't always the same. For me, they tend not to be. So, um, yeah, um, maybe that's because I've spent a lot of my career not being very specialized, even though it may sound very specialized, talk about something like, like phosphorus, but I have worked in a lot of different dimensions of mm -hmm. it from knowledge from across ecosystems, from aquatic systems to grasslands to um, I published a paper on pandas, giant pandas once. Um, we've worked on cancer biology. We've worked on all kinds of things and more recently working on this uh, issue of sustain agricultural food system sustainability. Because um, maybe I have a short attention span or attention deficit disorder or something like that. <laughs> I think it's more because I like being on learning curves. Yeah. I like to learn new things. Um, so I like getting down, you know, into a new literature, trying to figure out how things work. And part of that was I, for most of my career, I've worked on developing something in it with another unpronounceable word. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. I'm Maureen Dowd of The New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. It's called the theory of ecological stoichiometry. And yeah, I was, a, I was really glad. I've so my yeah. objective in this whole interview, Jim, is to try to 
get you to be the first mover on it right. on, on pronouncing right. that so term. I said it first. Yeah. And so split cameras are one of the ugliest words in English language. You know. So we've worked on that, and essentially is the study of the elemental recipe of living things. Okay. The living things aren't made of arbitrary combinations of elements. They're made of spe- specific elements in specific proportions. And so what we're seeking to understand is what are the rules that govern those proportions? And given that there are rules for how those elements come together in living tissues or biomass or your body, what does that mean for the organism's ecology, its distribution and nature, you know, its abundance, its dynamics? And so that's been a 30-year quest yeah. sort of developing and articulating and communicating that theory. Are those... It's been pretty successful, which I think is a sign that the idea is strong because the word is really, really ugly. <laughs> yeah. and so if you can get a concept to catch on with a word that ugly, it must have some power. I, I agree. As, as you're <laughs> describing this, you know, these proportions, is it, is it discrete in the sense that does, does everything with this proportion of elements is everything with this proportion of elements alive or are there things that have not lived or will not ever live that have this proportion of elements? Oh yeah. There's no, there's no single proportion that you could say that's a living thing. Okay. That's a non-living thing. Just by knowing that proportion, it's more along the lines that the proportions that a living thing can take are quite constrained. I see. Yeah. Gosh. That it, there's, there's certain chemical proportions. If you've reported them to me, I would say that's not alive. That's not mm. an organism. Okay. For example, if you told me you had an organism that had zero phosphorus in it, I would tell you that that's not a living thing because all living things have phosphorus in them because they need phosphorus to make DNA, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so when you're thinking about this, 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 these sorts of questions, are you at the level of microscopic organisms? I mean, I, I would assume you're talking about things that are really small. That's mostly what I work on because in lakes and oceans where I've done most of my work, the work the organisms work on are planktonic, bacteria, algae, animal plankton, you know, which are very small, maybe a millimeter or two. That's a big one. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so most of the organisms we worked on are small, but I'm sitting here in my office looking at the ponderosa pine and the other beautiful trees here in the shore of the lake. And we've published a fair amount on the, chemical composition of terrestrial ecosystems and organisms like trees and pine needles and leaves and such. And I've been working with, for example, Professor Diana Six at um, at the University of Montana. And she and I published a nice paper recently on uh, bark beetles okay. and how they relate, how they grow in the bark of a tree and how they rely on a fungus to transport actually phosphorus. Um, from the parts of the tree that are moving the phosphorus around, and so they sort of steal it, and the bark beetle is able to get phosphorus from that source. If it just ate the bark without the fungus, there'd never be enough uh, phosphorus in it for this beetle to grow. So this, that's actually, a, I think, maybe an instructive example because that sort of science, you know, is super important. Yet it often is the butt of jokes and. <laughs> political debates or something like that. Like there'll be this talking point that such and so got however many million dollars to study the beetles and how they eat bark and it's such a waste and 
all that stuff. But maybe talk about how from these little things we can extract really important information about how how the broader oh, yeah. world operates. Well, I mean, there's many examples of sort of obscure research that has turned into big payoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a good example that's maybe regionally relevant is that the enzyme um, is an enzyme called TAC polymerase, which is used in what's called the polymerase chain reaction, which is the fundamental tool of molecular biology, which is, um, you know, driven a gigantic multi-billion dollar um, industry um, that's revolutionizing healthcare and other mm-hmm. domains of endeavor. Um, that enzyme was isolated from a weird uh, microorganisms in a hot spring in Yellowstone National Park. Interesting. By someone who was just saying, hey, look at these weird bugs living in this hot spring. I wonder how they do that. Yeah. And, you know, they found these enzymes that are resistant to heat. And so you can use them in this special reaction where you heat and cool the sample. Um, And then in the process of doing that, the DNA target is copied and copied and copied for analysis. And so the, that whole um, revolutionary process was made possible because someone, you know, was curious about weird microbes that live in hot springs. Mm -hmm. And so Jim, I want to talk about, um, in your recent honor that you received, you were invited into the National Academy of, of Sciences. And, um, you know, my understanding is that, that that's one of the highest, if not the highest, distinction that an American scientist can can gain. Can you talk about that achievement? And, you know, how you know, we've talked about the work that sort of drove yeah. it. But, um, you know, yeah, first... it's shocking a little bit. I got my certificate in the mail today. Oh, really? Nice. They sent me, they said, if you go on my, follow me on Twitter, you can go to doctor, at Dr. Limnology. That's who I am on Twitter. And I tweeted a picture of it today. So it arrived, my certificate, big certificate that's signed by all the officers of the National Academy. So it's pretty exciting. Um, I think it's the highest honor that a scientist can get that you could reasonably hope for. Okay. You know, because I, I think a Nobel Prize is probably sure. a bigger deal. Um, Nobel prizes aren't available for people working in ecology and the environment though. So, you know, probably for an ecologist, this is the highest thing you can hope for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's something you think about sometimes, maybe occasionally once you get to a certain point in your career, but you don't really think it's going to happen. It's not like um, you're setting a strategy to earn this distinction or you're, you're uh, not like, yeah, well, I don't know. Some people might, yeah, maybe. um, from what I can understand about the process now that I've been elected and we I've seen part of the process going on, I don't think anyone understands how it actually happens. It's very complicated <laughs> um, how all the voting takes place and how the nomination takes place. So it'd be very hard to figure out a way to, to uh, strategize through it. So um, it's very surprising. Um, it's a huge, you know, honor. Um, I hope that, you know, it can give a platform for, the station, well, for a platform more for, you know, limnology and people who study lakes. There's a number of folks who are in the National Academy who study lakes. So I'm glad to join them there and advocate on behalf of, of our science and the importance of freshwater um, uh, ecology for human welfare and well-being. There's only two members in the state of Montana now. Mm-hmm. The second one, so we, Montana's doubled its representation in the academy. Kathy Whitlock in Montana State is the other member she's also an ecologist 
Um, so it's pretty exciting. Um, there'll be a big ceremony in April of next year where the actual induction takes place in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so you, you, you mentioned a little bit of this. I mean, it certainly it elevates your field. It elevates Montana. Also elevates uh, the University of Montana and the biostation in particular. Can we, we talk a little bit? I mean, we talked about that at the beginning of the conversation, but let's go back to the biostation yeah. and particularly what's going on at Flathead Lake. I mean, Flathead Lake is such uh, an iconic piece and part of Montana. Talk about the lake and what's happening there and how climate change is affecting the lake and, and other well, forces. Well, the lake is doing great. Um you know, that's one of the things, you know, I'm happy to go around, you know, there, there's a lot of people here in this, one of the things that's attractive about this job and coming here is that the community is really engaged. Yeah. They're, the people who live here, you know, they love the lake, they're serious about the lake, they're well informed about the lake generally, you know, so when we have events or I'm giving a talk or something, you know, there's always people there, they have great questions, they have a lot of um, investment, personal, emotional financial mm-hmm. in the lake Absolutely. and its well-being and so the lake is doing really well i've been going around showing these slides for the last year or so um showing that the phosphorus levels in the lake are actually stable and maybe declining over time in the last several decades we have good data going back to 1977 um that is quite unusual if you compare that to other lakes around North America and many lakes around the world are going the other direction. Phosphorus levels are going up, algae are going up, algae blooms are going up. So in general, the lake is doing really well. It's just as clear now, maybe even clearer than it was 30 years ago. It's remarkable. Can you attribute Um, that to just good sort of stewardship of the resource by the communities and yeah. and so forth? Um, a lot of things are responsible, part of which is, you know, 65% of the watershed of the lake is in federal protected um, land, either the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex or other wilderness areas in the catchment or Glacier National Park. Um, so there's much less um, development and logging and uh, urban development and settlements and such that are taking place because of that. So the, most of the catchment is protected. The other thing I've been telling people and showing them these data about the nutrient levels is that back in the early 80s, um, well, late 70s, the lake was showing some signs of water quality degradation mm-hmm. with you know maybe some signs of some early algae blooms. And then they decided to invest in wastewater treatment plants in Kalispell and Big Fork um, and elsewhere. And um, those treatment plants have been quite effective. <laughs> they yeah. removed the phosphorus from the, uh, those effluent, uh, possible effluent sites. And uh, as a part of that, the phosphorus levels, as I mentioned, are declining in the lake slowly or they're stable. So I think it has been wise investment. I think people are understand about phosphorus here. Largely, be, I think, again, I'll credit my predecessors at the biostation did a great job. Um, communicating all this stuff. There's a great community here. There's an organization called the Flathead Lakers, which is a lake association founded in 1965, I think. It's Mm -hmm. been around for quite a while, 1,500 members, and they run a lot of public education events, and um, that community is very well informed about things that affect the health of the lake. Um, So they don't, not to 
criticize you, Justin. They don't glaze over when I say phosphorus. Okay. Well, that's I'm good. I mean, that, that yeah. I'm, I'm just saying, you know. Um, so, they're, so they're tuned into that. The biggest thing we're, we're concerned about now and working on heavily is invasive species mm. uh, prevention. Right. Muscles and all of that. Yeah, the muscles that have been grabbing the headlines for the past uh, couple of years. As you know, they were the zebra, horrible zebra quagga mussels were uh, found in Tiber Reservoir, possibly in a couple other sites on the east side of the Continental Divide. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, triggered a lot of responses at the state level. And the tribes have also been active. And then we were very active as well in trying to educate folks about uh, the risks involved and to... Um, do everything we can to help um, keep them out. And so we've been developing a cool method called environmental DNA, which is completely widespread in ecology now, where you don't search for organisms by trying to find the organisms themselves, like in a net or a trap or something. Okay. Instead, you take samples and you look for their DNA sequences in your sample, hmm. which is pretty cool. That seems like a much more sensitive measure, I would think. It could be. That's right. Because, you know, especially in water, carries things around, right? So you can think of the water sort of averaging across the whole habitat, if you will. And then if you have the right sampling method and can get that DNA, you can, you know, um, maybe get an early sign of it. It has its issues, of course, but um, it's one of the tools like we think can be helpful as we're trying to keep these critters out. The, this basin, the, you know, Flathead's at the head of the Columbia River Basin, mm -hmm. the only... Um, river uh, basin in the United States that's not uh, infested by zebra quagga mussels. When you're studying the lake, how how important, or I guess lakes in general, you know, we, we focused on phosphorus and other nutrients, but how does temperature of the, of the water play into this? Sure. Um, warmer water, things like warmer, well, a lot of things like warmer water. Right. And they grow faster. Um, and so, and when you think about algae blooms, the warm water is low density water, it tends to float on top of the lake. And so that keeps the algae up in the, up in the sunlight where they can do more photosynthesis. And so it tends to be associated with increased possibility of, of algal blooms. And so that's one reason we need to keep track of the climate, the weather conditions, the temperature of the air, temperature of the water. We monitor that all pretty regularly. So that's one of the things that's, that's connected. Temperature is also connected to a lot of other things in interesting ways. For example, warmer water holds less oxygen than cold water does. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit the opposite of what you think, because like the more warm the water is, you can dissolve more salt in it, right? But with oxygen, the oxygen is not actually dissolved in the water. It's really mixed into the water. Okay. So the warmer the water is, the more oxygen molecules it kicks out back into the atmosphere. So that's important because the warmer the water gets, the less oxygen it holds, and that is has implications for things like uh, uh, fish that need yeah, a lot of oxygen kill. for metabolism and their own um, respiration. And so that's one reason we're concerned about temperatures, especially in the rivers around here, as climate change is unfolding. You know, it's going to be reducing the habitat that uh, cold water fish um, can take advantage of. And those mm -hmm. are, you know, the native fish that we, you know, are attached to like West Slope cutthroat trout and uh, bull trout are especially uh, cold water adapted. 
And as things warm up, rainbow trout, which are, you know, not really from around here um, and are a little bit ordinary, um, you know, they start to spread out, take over more of that habitat, hybridize cutthroat trout and, and degrade the fishery. And so um, that's one reason we're concerned about the, the changing climate around here. Well, speaking of changing climate and speaking of, um, you know, habitat, you know, looking through my notes here, I see that. We talked a little bit about your exploration of newly formed lakes and glacier. You have a story that involves some some bear spray during one of those <laughs> uh, during one of those uh, field missions. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, that was pretty crazy. So, um, but you know, I think it's a sign of you know what it takes to get the job done. So anyway, we were out myself and three others from the Bion Station. Our goal was to sample some new lakes that had formed uh, below Blackfoot Glacier. So Blackfoot Jackson glaciers, pair glaciers on the south side of the Going to Sun Road after you've gone over um, Logan Pass on the east side there. And um, so um, it's a bit of a trip. So you hike in. So, so basically, I do put all our camping gear, backpacking gear together. Um, food, etc. you know, for a couple of days, because we're going to be out for at least two days. Um, and then all our sampling gear as well, you know, bottles and nets, and we have a backpacking raft that we carry along. That's a big kit. Well. Yeah, it's a pretty big kit. So, you, so yeah, you need a bunch of people to carry all the extra stuff too. So, yeah, so we were going in, we started late one day um, in the evening hiked in, you go to Gunsight Lake, and then you head off from there, and then you go off trail, start to get up to the basin, Blackfoot Jackson Basin, and I remember we had just started, probably started too late that day, and I was pretty tired. These are the young guys I'm hiking with, and so I'm not as good at keeping up with them. Eventually, you're up on the slope, you know, trying to get up on the basin, and it was about 10.30 at night or 11 I was spent, so we just, I said, okay, we're done. <laughs> so we just sort of laid down, found some semi-flat spots, ate some food, and and uh, slept. And again, up early the next morning, fine, okay. Start moving, you know, five, six in the morning or something, start climbing up to the base, up to the basin itself, an hour and a half, you know, up there. And God, it's beautiful. We come over this ridge. Lakes are down below us. There's the glacier in front of us, gorgeous sunrise. It's fantastic. You know, here we are with our packs. We're getting down, heading down to the lake. And, um, and I step on a rock, but it was a round rock, <laughs> and it's so uh, rolled out from under me, Oof. and I went completely airborne um, with my full pack on, slammed into the ground, uh, you know, pretty hard, sort of staggered to my feet. And as I'm sort of staggering to my feet, I start to um, choke, coughing, terrible, and a terrible smell is in my nose, and I'm like, what, ah, what is going on? Oh, this is horrible. Gosh. Yep. And within a short period of time, maybe 20 seconds of this flailing around, one of the my companions come running up, get your, your bear spray, get rid of it. And, my, and he runs up and grabs the bear spray, which is on my hip belt, and throws it away. And so when I fell, I broke the lid off it. Sure, punctured it in some way? It, it wasn't punctured. The whole lid had come off. Oh, gosh. And the can was sitting in on my hip belt and just spraying me from close <laughs> range. <laughs> and it was quite remarkable. So we staggered out of the um, out of the cloud and sat down. And, uh, and uh, then it took me about a half an hour to recover from that. It was a pretty weird <laughs> and strange experience. 
because during the incident, I had a couple of thoughts that formed in my head. One was um, I formed the hypothesis that what was going on is that when I fell, I had breathed in very hard, you know, like that, and had breathed in a leaf from a plant. Mm, okay. And it was making the smell and was clogging my airway. That's what that's what I thought was going on. That's what it felt like, a leaf. <laughs> and then when yeah. the, the next thing I thought was that, wow, this is, uh, no, the next thing I thought was, what kind of brain injury can you sustain when you start smelling things? That was the second thought I had. Well, it would be probably <laughs> difficult to conduct studies on both of those questions, right? Particularly the second yeah. one. Yeah, luckily both of them were wrong and someone else was thinking more clearly at the moment. And um, it took about a half an hour wow. and I was able to keep moving and then we got the sampling done. But that they lasted about 17 hours. When yeah. They were on trail for about 12 hours by the time we got the sampling done and got it back out to the truck. It was almost dark. <laughs> I mean, I think that probably cuts both ways. It's 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 wonderful to be. I mean, I'm sure you're you have moments where you're like, wow, I get to work here. Like this is my office. Um, yeah. Yet at the same time, that's an office that takes a lot of work to get to. It's it's a challenging commute. Um, I'd rather have that commute than many others, but it's challenging nonetheless. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's I've had a lot of great adventures in my career. That was one of them. You know, a lot of the other sampling events don't go like that, right? They're they're much more smooth than that. But I've sure. had a lot of wild adventures um, and mostly fun. Nothing dangerous, or no one's ever been injured uh, in any of those. So we've always come through in the end. So it's quite the thing. Well, Jim, it's been super fun learning about your work. Congratulations again on you know this 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 national National Academy of Sciences uh, recognition. It's fantastic that this is happening here at the University of Montana. I hope that your next um, session of adventure limnology um, doesn't involve bear spray, or at the very least, you're spraying it at something else. So that's right. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate the chance to come on here. I just want to invite anyone who's out there listening to come by the bio station. We have various public events during the year. In summer, we have an open house, for example. We have a Science on Tap event every month in the Big Fork. And if there's any students out there or if people who know students, uh, have a look at our website and learn about our summer session where you uh, can pick a class and get in on all this uh, excitement. Absolutely. Great resource, and I encourage everybody to take advantage. Thanks, Jim. Thanks a lot. Okay, hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Get yourself up to the Flathead Lake bio station and check it out. It's an incredible resource. All right, coming up next week, we have legendary Montana artist Monty Dolak. Super stoked for that one, so stay tuned next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum, and interns Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.